Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 141. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. From high atop the stately Lee's Comics mansion, we bring you the Lee's Comics Radio Hour with tonight's special guests, Spider-Man, Superman, Batman, Cerebus the Aardvark, and yours truly, Wally Fields. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store, based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale. For half off, choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar. Scroll down to Sellers and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. Dennis the Menace, originally a comic trick panel introduced in 1951, expanded into a comic book series, an American television series starring Jay North, an animated television series, and subsequent television series, books, and feature films. There's even a chapter on the British version of Dennis the Menace and Dennis' longtime association with Derek Green and his playground. Pocket Full of Dennis the Minutes by Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions explores the entire history of Dennis the Minutes and is available now on Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. Hey Michael, it says here we've written another book about the monkeys. Wasn't the first one enough? Not at all, Mark! Our original book, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Songs One by One, was very successful, but only covered half the story. Which half? The group half. Our new book, Headquartered, A Timeline of the Monkey's Solo Years, covers the solo half. Who knew the monkeys record so many solo albums? Not only that, but this book covers all of their solo projects, including stage shows, horse racing, running record labels, directing and starring in TV shows and movies, voice acting, and jail. Jail? Did the monkeys go to jail? Ah, you have to read the book to find out. You sold me. Have you sold them? 
who, who, who's them? Those people out there listening to this. Well, listen to this. This book has discographies, photos, and other information about the Prefab Four, Mickey, Davey, Peter, and Mike, the Solo Monkeys, plus another nifty cover by Scott Shaw. Wow, he did our last cover, and this one's equally good. Where can you get this masterpiece? Announcer. Announcer? That's me. <clears throat> get Headquartered, a timeline of the Monkey Solo Years, written by Michael A. Ventrella and Mark Arnold. Those two guys. Available in hardback, paperback, or ebook from BearManorMedia.com or from Amazon. Get your copies today. Cool. I'm going to get one today. You can order the TTV scrapbook today at Bear Manor Media or Barnes & Noble. Currently, it is available in hardcover and paperback and will be an ebook soon. Also, it will be available on Amazon and other online platforms soon. I finished my Popeye article and am now working on a Dino Writers article for Back Issue Magazine and a new Warren Kremer article for Alter Ego. And of course, I'm still working on my Mad and Turtles books. On today's show, we have a fan of the Beatles, the Monkees, and the Partridge family, and an educated guest on various podcasts, including the Plastic EP Show and Talk More Talk. Here he is, Ed Rising. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with another Fun Ideas podcast, and today on the show I have uh, Beatles and Monkeys fan extraordinaire, among other things, uh, Ed Rising. How are you today, Ed? Hey, Mark. How are you? I'm fine. Good to be here. So where do you hail from? You're from back east somewhere. Yes, I'm from Long Island, New York. Okay. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a fan of all these wonderful 60s groups and other things. Well, I was very lucky growing up in New York. Um, first of all, my sister Nancy uh, is a few years older than I, and so she was exposed to all the great music of the 60s, the Beatles, Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, the Beach Boys, Jay and the Americans. We just lost Jay Black recently. Right. Um, you know, uh, then later on, the Monkees came in, and so uh, it was funny. She always loved the Beatles until they got mustaches. Yeah. When they got mustaches, all of a sudden the monkeys took over her walls <laughs> instead of the Beatles. And uh, so I got a chance to listen to uh, a lot of her 45s and um, and then, of course, listen to 77 WABC Music Radio, you know, <laughs> probably the, the best top 40 radio station ever, you know, great DJs like uh, Cousin Brucey and Ron Lundy and Harry Harrison. Mm -hmm. uh, Dan Ingram, of course, and so we, uh, I, I learned very, from a very early age from my sister that music was not just the backdrop of your life. It wasn't just wallpaper around you. It mm -hmm. was like oxygen. It was like water. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's been with me my whole life. Now, is she a fan from the very start from Ed Sullivan on, basically? I would say so, yeah. Okay. And uh, she loves everything. Like she's more into American Idol or The Voice or things like that nowadays. And oh, okay. Listening to older stuff so much. <laughs> <laughs> so she keeps current while we get stuck in the past. That's exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. She keeps going on. So um, I interviewed uh, Kid O'Toole recently, and uh, she has a podcast, or at least she's participated. I forgot if it's hers or not. But you also appear on it called Talk More Talk. Is that correct? Uh, she does talk more talk with Tom um, Hundady. I 
I'm not pronouncing his name correctly. Okay. And with uh, Joe, uh, Joe Mayo, mm-hmm. and of course Ken Michaels, and uh, it's, a, it's a bi-weekly podcast on the Solo Beatles, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am not on the show, I okay. but I watch it every week and I comment and so forth. So you have been. You I have enjoy being. Oh. Yeah, I enjoy being on that. Yeah. That's yeah. very cool. Okay. All right. And um, w- when you became a, a big fan of all these groups, I mean, did you ever envision um, being a fan basically your entire life where you figured that this would be something you'd grow up? I could ask this about myself, but I figured I'd ask another fellow fan. No, that's a great question, Mark, because to me, I think even early on, um, for instance, the Partridge family was my first favorite group. That was the, the other groups, the Beatles, the Monkees, and so forth. They were my sister's groups. Okay. When the Partridge family came around, that was my group. I had the Osmonds. I had Jackson 5. I had mm-hmm. the Partridge family, David Cassidy. And I knew, even as a little kid, that this was going to be my favorite music for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I just adopted the Beatles and the Monkees in the same manner. Right. I did it kind of backwards, but I guess I did it forwards, but I mean, I, I did it backwards in the fact that, you know, I, I saw Partridge Family and the Monkees when they were, well, I didn't see Monkees when it was originally on there on Saturday morning reruns, but Partridge Family, I did see new for the most part. And I don't know, maybe it was because I was just a little kid or something. I just didn't care or get it. I mean, as far as Partridge Family, Brady Bunch, totally a Brady Bunch fan. And didn't care too much about David Cassidy or the music or anything like that. In fact, I used to go so far as, yeah, that's not music or whatever, like most people do. Uh, and then became a true Beatles fan in the late 70s, about 77. About 1980, became a Monkees fan. And then after all that, then I became a Partridge Family fan. I said, they got some decent stuff. And Cassidy wasn't that bad of a vocalist. And he actually composed some good things. He did, he's a halfway decent actor. He did some other things in his life. So, yeah. <laughs> but I, so I, I, I experienced them all in order. It's just not from 64 to 74. It was more like 77 to 87. <laughs> in that order. Yeah. Well, I think there's some, there's some similarity to you. Yeah. In the later 70s, I began to... Um, enjoy the Beatles music for itself. Remember, yeah. the Beach Boys had their resurgence in the middle 70s. Right. Remember the Red and Blue albums and the big Beach Boy compilation albums that came out in the 70s. So I was exposed to all that. Elvis died in 77, and when he died, I had to have all his records or some <laughs> of his records, you know. Yeah. Things like that became part of what I would be exposed to. And then all of a sudden, yeah, right, about the monkeys, right. You know, so the monkeys in the 80s, you know, early 80s, like 1980, when I first got my record of the club deal or whatever from the back of Rolling Stone magazine, whatever it was, <laughs> yeah. and I bought all those albums fresh, right. you know, then I became like, yeah, okay, so this is my music again, you know, so, and then of course with the Beatles, I had a friend of mine in high school, and uh, we were very good friends, good, good group of friends. And he was a huge Beatles fan, solo Beatles fan, and he pretty much introduced me or reintroduced me to a lot of the Beatles stuff and solo Beatles stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd always, always listen to McCartney and, and some of the George Harrison singles and so forth, but I wasn't a huge fan. Right. But I guess with my involvement with my friends, it became a big part of my life. 
Was there, was there like one specific thing that made you a fan? Because I can tell you that for myself, uh, that I knew about the Beatles prior to 1977, but there was a turning point at 77. So was there one for you? Well, like I said, we would be, he would, my friend would make mixtapes. Okay. And he would put mixtapes of Beatles stuff and solo Beatles stuff, and then a couple of Yoko Ono things in there. <laughs> so you'd hear that one song where the tree falls in the middle of it or something like oh. that. And I know this is just very bizarre or whatever you want to call it, avant-garde, yeah. whatever it was, but it was bizarre. I think it's Touch but, Me, is that one? <laughs> but I, but I, I just kind of enjoyed it. And I just <laughs> kind of enjoyed the whole experience of all the Ringo Starr stuff, the, uh, uh, the um, Six O'Clock. Yeah, McCartney and Ringo sing that together, and now ah, it just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And so uh, as things just kind of kept growing and growing, and I, and of course with Lennon's passing, or I shouldn't say passing, but his assassination, right? Um, everything else just developed even greater after that, you know. Right. Yeah, for me, it was. Um... Uh, I've said this on other podcast episodes, but I always repeat myself. <laughs> it's like, um, I was a comedy fan first, probably. Um, I mean, I knew about the Beatles from the standpoint is my, my sister's a little bit older, like yours. Uh, and she pointed out in magazines, she'd get the typical Tiger Beat 16 type magazines. And, so, and occasionally, even in the seventies, they run a picture of the Beatles or at least one of them or McCartney or something. And she goes, that's the Beatles. And I go, Okay, whatever, you know, um, my first exposure probably was um, Sesame Street, of all things, um, because I was there from day one, 69, and uh, I heard the Muppets version of Yellow Submarine and Octopus's Garden before I ever heard Ringo sing them in the Beatles, so, right. um, but I was aware of those songs, and it helps for later in the story, Um the, the first song I ever heard that I know I heard, and this is in the early 70s, probably late 60s, I don't know, because I was pretty young, I was born in 66, uh, was probably Come Together, because I really remember that distinctive, like, whatever that he says, they say he says, shoot me or just shoot at shoot. the beginning, you know, where he's a shoot, you know, and it stuck in my brain. Yeah, yeah, And yeah, we used yeah. to go to this restaurant uh, called the giant artichoke. I haven't told this story before much. Um, in the early seventies, like 70, 71, 72 or whatever. And it seemed like every time we went there, they'd be playing that song. They probably had like a cassette tape or something and they played it over and over and over. I didn't right, know. It. Right, right. But you know, it might've been the radio, but you know, they certainly liked that song because they were, at least that was the one that stuck in my mind. I go, that's a pretty interesting song. Had well, no if you idea. look at the Beatles. Well, yeah. I'm not sure if you call it a hook or whatever. But yeah. that first beginning of that song, that shoot, and then Ringo's drum roll. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that does take you right in, you know? Right. And so, yeah, that, that definitely could see that happening. The funny thing you mentioned about Sesame Street is that they had tremendous, I mean, in the early years, my, my little sister was, uh, my little sister uh, was a uh, little kid during that time, and my younger brother's. Mm-hmm. And they all watched it. And so I watched it with them. Yeah. And I was very impressed with the music and uh, just the whole production back mm-hmm. then. And how they incorporated, uh, was it Rubber Ducky and things like that into... So it was, it, was, it was good stuff. Well, they had very good songs. I mean, if I had 
uh, a group <laughs> that I was following or a music that I followed. It was certainly uh, the songs by Joe Raposo. You know, he was probably my first uh, <laughs> person I followed, but I didn't know it was him. I mean, I just like the the Sesame Street music, and then secondly, mm-hmm. maybe Mr. Rogers and uh, you know things like that. And he composed his own stuff, so that was my earliest stuff. But going back to the Beatles thing, the only the first song I remember hearing on the radio, and I mm-hmm. didn't know it was Beatles related or anything, was uh, Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey, and that one by uh, Paul McCartney and Linda. Uh, that one has that hook, you know. Again. Is you know it's like hands across the water you know and you know, so I'd always remember that never knowing it was called Admiral Halsey I thought you know I thought the right. song was called Hands Across the Water I didn't know you know right right and right. Uh, so you flash forward a few years and then um, th- this is where the story where I normally tell it is I was a big fan of Monty Python already my dad loved comedy and so even in the early seventies I had seen Marty Feldman on TV and. Uh, Monty Python, as soon as they came out over here, uh, rather than in England, my dad watched it first because it was on pretty late, and then he, he finally let me stay up to start watching it, became a total fan. Uh, Saturday Night Live came out, became a total fan, and Eric Idle hosted once, and it was, it, well, he hosted a couple times, but the first time he hosted, he came out and he did his rendition of Here Comes the Sun, so you probably have seen this somewhere along the line. Probably, and, yeah. Uh, he, he plays the guitar and just goes, Broom, here comes the sun! And he just <laughs> shouts it out like that. Here comes the sun! And I say, it's all right! And then somebody <laughs> comes in, Jane Gardner, one of the others, says, you know, Eric, this is a really good song. You should save it for the end of this show. Which basically meant, you suck, get off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> and so he goes, oh, all right, all right. So we introduced Joe Cocker. He was like the guest star. And, and so we went on. And, uh, you know, so I'm watching this thing and I go, that's got to be a real song. He can't be just making up something that strange like that. Maybe he was. But I asked my parents, I said, is that a real song? You know, what is that? And he goes, oh, that's Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles. And I go, really? Uh, uh, Can I hear the real version? I go, yeah, we actually have the album over there in the rack, you know, and I go. Oh, okay. So I took the record rack uh, out of the record rack, and I, I had seen the album in I, because I knew my parents' records, but I never played that one. It looked like, ew, you know, adult music. You know, it wasn't kids' music like the Sesame Street. Right, right, right. And you know, I go, "There's no name on this. Who is this?" You know, because it had him crossing the street, but there's right, no name right, on right. the front. You know, and I just thought it was really weird. And it's like, who are these long-haired people? I don't know. You know. So anyway, I pulled it out and I go, "Oh." Apple, that's pretty cool, you know. And then I put it on, and I oh, I put it on side two first because here comes the, here the sun. Comes the sun on opens two. the album. So I play it and I go, oh, I've heard this song. That's a really cool song. Yeah. I wonder yeah. what else is on this album. And so I flip it over and then I play and it's come together. And I go, oh my god, it's a same right? song. Oh my god, to- mine is blown. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next song was something, and I go. I've heard this song too. I don't know where right. I heard it, but probably on the radio or something. Um, what's the next song? It's like "Oh, Darling" or something. I don't is remember. It, um, is it "Octopus's Garden"? No, that's the fourth song. That's what I said. Um, the third Maxwell song. Maxwell Silverhammer. I, then. Yeah, yeah, and I, I go, oh, that's a cute one. And then "Octopus's Garden" came. Out. I know that one too. You know, and it's, right. it's like, and then I listened to the rest of the album, and I didn't really know much of the rest of them. But the fact was, I said, this has four big songs on it. 
this can't be right. It's not a greatest hits because I figured, you know, most people would do a record album with like one good song and the yeah. rest. You know, yeah. I didn't know the Beatles history from anybody that they were better or greater or tried to do better or, you know, have this following. I knew nothing about that. I just knew that they existed and that they broke up. And that's about it. And everybody yeah. wanted them together, but then everybody wanted even the Partridge family back together. So who knew? You know, it's like uh, if they were better or greater. Um, and so, you know, I, I said, do we have any other records? The only other thing we had was we had a 45 of Help. And so I played Help and I'm Down. for. And so those were my, like, go-to records. But I wanted more. And mm. eventually got, you know, all the other albums and everything and the rest is history. But it's like, you know. <laughs> so essentially you had younger parents. My parents were already close to 40 uh, around the time that I was listening to. I mean, by 1966, my father was 40. So he wasn't going to be listening to Elvis yeah. or the Beatles. They were all talking about uh, uh, swing music and big bands yeah. and so forth. and. My my parents were five years apart, and so in 1977, my mom would have been, uh, let's see, 53, 63, 73. She would have been 34, and my dad would have okay. been 30, 39. Right. But right. that five-year gap could have been like a 25-year gap because my mom always tried to keep up with current music, especially after I grew up a little bit. When I was mm -hmm. a little baby, you know, because I asked her, it's like, why didn't you go to the Beatles concert? And it's like, we're busy raising you kids or I was pregnant with you sure. or whatever. You know, it's like, I wasn't going to go to a Beatles concert. Right, <laughs> you know? right, right. Um, but, um, and my dad was like, Here, here's my dad with music. Um, he was working at a TV station in 1956 in Bakersfield, and they showed some clip of Elvis Presley as the new singing sensation, and he probably sang something like uh, Heartbreak Hotel or something. Yeah, And uh, he was swinging his hips around, and my dad says, who is this hillbilly? <laughs> and, uh, you know, my dad's only a couple years younger than Elvis. He's still around, but, you know, it's like he just thought the guy was just some crazy hillbilly you know singer goofball he didn't have any interest at all and my dad always was like more into the big band and jazz and yeah. maybe sinatra a little bit but more into like that type of music you know he'd probably yeah. yeah you know he never really collected music but if he was listening to something i i bet he was listening to take five or something by dave brubeck or something like that you know rather than you know anything to do with pop music at all yeah. And so, you know, I asked his opinion about the Beatles and said, Yeah, they were around for a while and then they went away. <laughs> my mom was like <laughs> my mom was like, Oh yeah, they were pretty cool and you know, they still make music now, you know, and I was like, Oh, that's cool, you know. Um and a funny story about that. So after this uh enlightenment about the Beatles, I only knew the Beatles. So my mom at my next birthday or whatever bought me a single of With a Little Luck by Wings. And I and I basically said the why why the hell did you buy me this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And she yeah, goes, well, yeah. look who wrote it. And I go, yeah. oh, it says McCartney. Oh, okay, one of the Beatles. Okay. And so she goes, well, play it. And so I go and play it. it you know, it just happened to be a number one tune, but I, you know, with a little luck, I just didn't know it. You know, because yeah. I wasn't registering current singers and songs. I just hear stuff on the radio. I became. Right. I made. I became a bigger 
knowledgeable fan about music and who did what after that. But, you know, that was like a big wake-up call ago. Oh, okay. So I guess they do have hits currently. They're just not in the Beatles anymore. Right. And then, you know, like, remember when Band on the Run came out? And that was a big record, huge yeah. record. I mean, I think the other records that he did previously were okay. I remember My Love being a hit record and Uncle Albert and so forth. Yeah. But um, and 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 and, and, and as I pre- mentioned previously, and I knew of the songs that George had, and and the Ringo album was huge, you know. Yeah. And uh, but I wasn't exactly I would say a, a huge fan. I just knew that I was aware of the Beatles. I knew who they were, and I was glad that they had records still, you know. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, uh, with the, the with the Partridge family fading out, mm-hmm. I had to find somebody else. You know, like I said, Elvis became uh, something, something that I got into. I got into Beach Boys. I got into Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow mm-hmm. became a huge uh, 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 artist that I that I still love. Mm-hmm. And um, but I, I I jumped on the Paul McCartney bandwagon at that point. Mm-hmm. I said, now this is the guy that's the next David Cassidy. If you really, I mean, I know how sacrilegious <laughs> that is in that but, order. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Talk about going backwards and forwards yes. and whatever. <laughs> this McCartney uh, fellow better uh, watch this Cassidy fellow. He's got a few things. To, you know. <laughs> Unbelievable. But yeah, that's that's honest. What can I tell you? Yeah. And uh, you know, and then the monkeys. You know, as uh, I, I always loved the monkeys, and I love the sound of that. And uh, and um, and so yeah. So by the time the age of six. Uh, tour came around. I was nuts. I could not believe what happened with that 1986 season. Yeah. But all of a sudden, two the two greatest things happened in my life. The New York Mets, my favorite baseball team, <laughs> had their greatest season, totally dominating the whole year long. It was great. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, I had the Monkees, and the Monkees are on MTV, and they were. I told my boss I had just been with my job a couple of years. And my, I didn't have a VCR yet, and barely even had cable. I don't think I even had cable yet. <laughs> and so, go to my boss. Says, "You got to tape all the monkeys episodes that are going to be on, because they're doing a marathon. Can you do that for me?" And he's looking at me like the monkeys. <laughs> and he's, you know, you know, he he grew up in the '60s, and so he knows who they are. Yeah. All right, well, you know, I'll try. And then he did the same thing for me with Live Aid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did that myself on Live Aid, but yeah. <laughs> but it's just a uh, just funny, uh, just a funny association that I have with the monkeys with my boss. Right. And uh, anyway, but just and then they have the big hit record that was then. This is now, and it just blew my mind. Uh, this was all over there again, and I got a chance to see them in concert, Mickey, Davy, and Peter, and I saw them twice at Jones Beach. I brought my youngest sister to see them, mm-hmm. and so uh, that was. That was just great, and ever since then I've been like monkeys nuts, mm-hmm. uh, as as plastic would say. <laughs> <laughs> now, were you, you a fan of the monkeys originally? I mean, or was that your sister's group? Well, like I said, she was my, my she was a fan originally. Yeah. And then um, I would watch the TV shows, maybe more so on the Saturday reruns or okay. after okay. school reruns. So I like to think of myself as a first generation because it's more prestigious. But yeah. I probably picked it up in the aftermath. Of- right. <laughs> I like to say I like to say them first generation, but I wasn't born until December of '66, so the show had been on for four months. But, but I think if it's anything before 
uh, Dolan's jo- Jones voice and heart, you're a first generation fan because <laughs> the contract was supposed to last till 73. They were on Saturday morning through 73. So it's like to the people who say, I was a first generation fan. What a generation is only two years. You know, it's like usually it's 20 years, folks. But, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Very good point. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, and I didn't know, you know, when I used to see him on Saturday morning, I, I mean, I've told this before, so I won't say it again, other than I didn't care for him that much back then. But I didn't know there were new rerun shows from the 60s. I thought it was brand new stuff. I had no idea. You know, it's like it was just stuff on Saturday morning, you know, so I watched it, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, I became a fan because of uh, Nesmith, because um, he did that show television parts. in the Right. Early- and and I said, huh, maybe I need to investigate this stuff a little bit further. And so that's when I, you know, slowly became a fan. And so by the time they actually did reunite, which I never thought would happen, I agree with you. Now here we are. Look at where we are. You know, but right. at the time in '86, I thought they'll never reunite because I think I read it was in Leftowitz's book. It was like they tried to do a McDonald's commercial and and they couldn't come to agreement or. And like Peter Tork didn't want to do it because it's advertising eating meat and yes, yes, yes. Nesmith didn't think there was enough money in it or something, or he just was too busy or whatever. And uh, you know, so it never happened. And so knowing Beatles history, I figured, well, they're never going to get together again either. You know, <laughs> right? And '86, uh, well, they did get together. In fact, all four of them did at least in one performance. So I right. said, okay. Well, I can see it's too bad all four of them did get together a little bit more often, but at least they did. You yeah. Know, so yeah. looking back, at least I mean they, they did. did they did a couple of shows where Nesmith did the encore. I think yeah. it's the '86 tour and '89 or something like that. Yeah. And um, just it bothers me that in 2011 Nesmith declined to join them, but I think he was having lawsuits with Pacific Arts and PBS at the time. Yeah. And uh, that just makes me sad because then Davy die, dies, you know. Yeah. And, uh, I've heard different you know. stories on that. I've also heard that the other three didn't want him, or at least Davy and Peter. The, Mickey seems to go along with everything. But yeah. <laughs> it, I, I've heard that Davy and Peter were kind of like, well, we have this polished act and we don't need interlopers, you know. But it's like, come on, guys. It's well, necessary. to be honest with you, I mean, look, Peter talk is a talented guy. He's an yeah. important part of the monkeys, but you know, if Peter wants something, you know what, let's see what Davey and Michael wants and Mickey wants. And then if you want to go along with that, then that's fine. And Danny yeah. with me, but the other guys are the talent in the group right. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I know that Davey had a bit of an ego. Uh, they all had egos, I imagine, right. but he, I, as you said, mentioned, I had read that, you know, they had their talent, their show in one way, and they didn't necessarily want to have to be having this, some of their songs dropped. Right. Which I guess would have been talk in that case because he would have had three or four songs dropped at least right. um, to do. So, and you know what? If I'm Peter Talk, I should be happy making the buck. And, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. It's just my opinion, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, not, apparently none of them ever really turned their nose at too much. I mean, it's kind of funny since I did that headquarter book with Michael Ventrella and went over their solo careers. I mean, yeah. all of them did quite a few things outside the monkeys, but that almighty dollar brought them all back over sure. and over again. So, I mean, right. whatever they were doing, be it Godspell, being directing British TV shows, being doing cartoon voiceovers, 
apparently didn't make it as much money as just being a monkey. You know? no. Or and it, maybe they actually had some fun doing it. So, you know. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure there was a combination of both. In my yeah. opinion, I think Davy Jones was so poorly marketed or managed or whatever. Yeah. It's just horrible that this man just never really uh, got a variety show. I mean, yeah. he did a he did a show in, in the B, on the BBC, I think it was, or yeah. British uh, TV. It was a TV special, and that never got became bigger than that. Yeah. I mean, that's just a terrible. With all the Tony Orlando and Dons and uh, and Casey and the Sunshine Band and God knows who else, yeah. Johnny Johnny Come Lately, whatever, whatever variety show that Davy right. Jones wasn't either you know, have his own show or be a, a regular guest on these shows, you know? Yeah. It's, that's a shame. I always found it amazing, yeah, to go down that path. I, I always found it amazing that none of them really had too much television success after that, apart from the monkeys. I mean, Nesmith's television parts, which I mentioned, only lasted a handful of episodes, and you'd think that that would have been, you know, a little bit more successful, maybe not a runaway hit, but I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, even if with you didn't think about the monkeys connection. I mean, there was some actual genuine funny stuff on that show. It was, and it wasn't the funny thing that I remember seeing that. And I was like, Oh yeah, this guy was funny. He was in the monkeys. He was funny. Yeah. And I kind of made me feel good. I remember he had that Rio hit record. Yeah. And I remember there's some bits on that. That's kind of fun to listen to. Yeah. And then he did the, um, the, the, the elephant parts. And I was yeah. like, you know, this, this could be great. And I think it's just the fact that he was a little too soon. I mean, yeah, he was, a, he was the pioneer. And if he had done it two or three years later, maybe MTV would have picked it up. Yeah. You know, I was saying maybe he could have gotten it on like HBO and, you know, maybe made it slightly more adult if that had to be that well. But I'm thinking yeah. about, you know, like Curb Your Enthusiasm, which has been on HBO for two decades, you know, yeah. That, he could have gone down that path had he yeah. chosen to. Of course, he may never have done Monkeys Reunions, but, you know, if he did a television parts show where he did a few episodes every year, you know, yeah. just for fun. Yeah. You sure. know. But um, it is kind of surprising. I agree with you on Davy Jones never having a variety show. Mickey is kind of an enigma to me. It's almost like for a bit after the Monkeys, he was trying to be more of an actor. And then after a few years, oh, I did some Adam 12s. I did, you know, medical center or something. I don't know. And then he just kind of, eh, whatever, you know. And it's probably because maybe he didn't need to do it. I don't know, you know. And so, yeah, and his record career was really bizarre. Um, right. And, you know, he just put out a, a smattering of singles. I would have thought somewhere along the line he would have put out a solo album long before he eventually did. And when he did, he put out a couple children's albums, which actually sound like just regular rock and roll albums for adults. But, you know, to gear them towards children was an odd choice, too. Yeah, yeah. it was very odd. And I remember seeing, um, oh, granted, he did have the directing career in England. Yeah. Um, but as far as the performers, I remember seeing his 70s solo stuff and I, I couldn't get over it. I said, this man has such a great voice. Yeah. Why is he making these kind of records? Yeah, and why? Uh, and and the Vicky take push it asleep. I had no interest in even listening to it. I was just <laughs> they're so disappointed in the choice. Yeah. So it's just weird how the uh, whether it's the entire entertainment industry, yeah, as how they view the monkeys. Yeah. 
or whatever. Uh, it was just uh, disappointing because I think he's just one of the great, great talents. Yeah. And maybe, as you say, he kind of is more affable than other people. And yeah. he's less worried about having his name being right up there. And uh, yeah. who knows? Yeah. Um, and then the other thing on Davey is like, yeah, maybe he just had such a bad experience with Bell and MGM that he didn't want to try to get, or maybe he did try. I don't know. That's the part of the story. I don't know if he tried mm. to get a record deal and was too demanding. It's almost like nobody was interested would probably be more likely. The, you the could have been on had, Broadway. The, the, the fact that he had to self-press his records and stuff like that. and Yeah. You know, which seems bizarre. I know some of those records are pretty good. And some of them yeah. are pretty awful. Yeah. But they're, cause, because there's no production. You know, yeah. it's just him sitting there with an acoustic guitar half the time. For most yeah. of those, uh, just, uh, was it Just Me or whatever it's called? Yeah. Uh, just for the record. Oh, just, um, yeah, Just Me. It, yeah. It's, yeah. it's pretty... Well, the Just for the record is a four-disc set. Or oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. It's an, yeah. I mean, it's an incredible thing to listen to. And that right. brings up another point that I'd like to make. Sure. Getting to the new albums that were released in recent years. Mm-hmm. The Good Times album. Mm-hmm. What the hell happened where there's no nothing from Davy Jones on there other than an old song from 1969? Yeah. There's nothing in the vault. There's nothing from the just for you, just for me or just for the record collection that they could have said, we want to use those songs and we and do like a, a free a freezer bird. Right. Kind of a thing. And yeah. rewrite the the, mu- the music around it and other vocals around it and Give Davy a couple of tracks on these on this album. Yeah, well, that was my complaint what when happened? I did when I did uh, Plastic EPs, and I think I talk about it in my other Monkeys book, uh, Plastic EPs uh, episode about the Good Times album. It's like, okay, if you had to just pick a Monkey song, and you couldn't go into Davy's solo stuff and do a Free as a Bird thing like you're talking about, or Real Love, or something like that, why did you pick a song? that has been released at least twice before. So it's not, I mean, you might as well have just done Daydream Believer and put it, slapped it on there if you're going to just do that. I mean, uh, I don't, I didn't expect him to pick, you know, like uh, you can't tie a Mustang down or something really obscure mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, there's stuff that they didn't put on those Missing Link stuff that they could have used. I mean, or even stuff that was put on there that, you know, yeah, they could have enhanced and made better, it seems like, so that Davey was involved in. But I don't know. Maybe it was an afterthought. I don't even know. That's a Sandoval-type question. Unfortunately, yeah. the producer is no longer with us, so we can't right. ask him. Right. Um, but, you know, it almost seems like that. It's like, don't you think you should put uh, Davey on here? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. You know, it's almost like, you know, I don't know. Then they have the follow-up Christmas album. Then they did it, and that's just maybe that. Maybe that answers our question here. Yeah. Because then they put Meli Kaliki Maka is Hawaii's way to say Merry Christmas to you. The worst, the worst Christmas song of all time. But he does a decent job, I will admit. You know? It's um, the most cringeworthy song ever. <laughs> I mean, Bing Crosby gets away with it because Bing yeah. Crosby can get away with anything. Yeah. But it's just, 
I don't know. I mean, I think Davey, I actually think Davey got away with it. Is it the greatest song ever? No, I agree with you. But I think (laughs) Davey got away with it because Davey and Mickey, their strongest points is they were able to sell a song to us listeners. You know, I mean, Davey's a a perfect example from being able to sell something like the, the day we fall in love, which is always maligned as being awful and everything like that. But if you're like a 10-year-old girl or whatever age, a 7-year-old girl listening to this, that's like gold. That's like... Oh, an 8-year-old boy. I mean, I'm sorry. I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so... And, you know, yeah, it doesn't doesn't become smarmy and tacky until you get to be 40, 50, 60 years old. And then you start saying, what is this crap? But then you realize, oh, that wasn't written for me. Actually, 18. (laughs) I'm like, wait a minute. What am I listening to here? You know? (laughs) What is this? I to skip those tracks. <laughs> because you mentioned Elvis. You know, Elvis had "Are You Lonesome?" Oh, please! Tonight? And then you know, a, a, you know, the spoken word part in that. I mean, and nobody sits there and says that's the worst Elvis song. Usually, they say it's one of the best. So it's like, you know, I've always like, liked it. Yeah, and point me in the direct, not point me, but uh, don't listen. Somebody want to be wanted yeah. by the Partridge family. David Cassidy hates the song, and you know, he just absolutely. Goes down. He'll be in concert, and sometimes he'll be a little bit not all there when he's in yeah. concert. And he'll start that song, and he'll have to go on about twenty minutes about how awful this record is, and how I had to sing this, <laughs> and how this was the worst thing that I ever had to do in my life, and it ruined my life. And uh, thank you very much, you know. And yet so, he'd sing it every time. So know. <laughs> you know, it's it's crazy. So let's talk a little bit about the Partridge Family. We've done enough monkeys okay. right now. It's like. So I, I'll tell you my quick story because it was just something that was on. I watched it and they played music and I didn't really think about it. I didn't. So I was only like three when it first came on the air and, you know, it was like seven when it was off the air. And so I just noticed that there was kids on it. There was a family that sang. I thought Mrs. Partridge was kind of pretty, you know, and, you know, that was about it. But I didn't collect anything. I didn't get into it. Other mm-hmm. people my age kind of did, but, you know, it just didn't phase me till like I said, years later. So you're a fan from day one and, yeah. or even before day one. Even before day one, because if I remember correctly, at the end of the summer of 1970, I Think I Love You was released. Okay. I have to go back and look at the actual dates, but my memory tells me that it was a hit record. Um, or at least it wasn't it? It was a hit record. Went to number one in November 1970. So probably mm-hmm. was wasn't maybe October or September. I'm thinking about. Yeah. And by November, it was a double play on WABC 77 Music Radio. And uh, I I loved I loved pop music from at that point anyway. So I was listening to the Top 40 Radio, and so all of a sudden there was a, this TV show about this. This 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 uh, this family that played, and that blew my mind, and and I loved the fantasy of it, and I loved the idea of it. And I thought they all played, of course. You know, I'm right. nine years old, mm-hmm. you know, and I thought this is the greatest thing, and I thought Keith and the whole group of them were just terrific. Yeah. And um, and of course, I was a Brady Bunch fan also. So the Brady Bunch and the <laughs> Bartlett family, the two greatest families of all time, back to back every Friday night. Yeah. And so I loved that, and um, and of course, though, the, then I got the records and the, the albums, and uh, and there were the the, the the fan club stuff and mm-hmm. magazines and whatever. Did you join the fan club? I sure did. 
Oh, cool. <laughs> I do did. You still have anything from it? Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> Not no, even I the mean, record? Didn't they have a little thing? Yeah, a little, yeah, yeah, yeah. little plastic, uh, uh, like a vinyl. I wouldn't even call it a vinyl record. It was just a like a piece of saran wrap or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Was, One of those know, plastic and, sound sheets that are floppy. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I have great memories of that, you know. Yeah. And uh, and things like that. So, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed that. And I remember when they changed uh, the, the, the the Chris Partridge, they had to recast um, Jeremy Galbrax. And he had right. uh, been tabooted off the show. And they replaced him with Brian Forster. That was a huge deal. You know, that was a huge <laughs> deal. Oh, my God. What are we going to do? Yeah. Didn't make a damn bit of difference. But, you know, <laughs> I always liked Jeremy Galbrax. I thought he looked more like David Cassidy. And so yeah. they looked more like brothers. But. Yeah. Then uh, again, Brian Foster looks a little bit more like Shirley Jones, so fine, yeah. whatever. <laughs> I think it's funny uh, because I didn't know anything in the history of the group, but I knew that the, Chris, uh, that character changed. And uh, But the rumor always was uh, that Jeremy Gelbox died. <laughs> oh, yeah, that all kinds of stuff, yeah. You know, and I had no idea. And I thought, oh, that's too bad. He was such a young little cute kid. And it's yeah, like, yeah. Then yeah. finds out years later no not true he's still around now so it's still like around now. whoops and it was just a simple matter if i remember correctly uh that his family wanted to move and they didn't want to be in hollywood anymore and it's like uh they weren't going to fly him in each week it was easier to get another kid because all they yeah. uh <laughs> all they all his basic lines of delivery were who you know <laughs> That's what the point is that he was <laughs> i thought i thought that he had a certain quality, a quality, yes, a star quality. There was an episode that, that centered around his character, and I thought he was quite good. But unfortunately, the situation with his family was what it was. Yeah. We have a new Chris. The yeah. records kept on coming. I woke up and love this morning was a huge hit. Yeah. Um, uh, every every one of those early records, those first four or five records, was huge. It was a big deal. Right. And then all of a sudden, it stopped. Yeah. The radio wouldn't play them. You couldn't go into a store and find them. It hmm. became, uh, and, and, and of course, by, by the time you're 13 or 12, yeah. the, you know, your older friends or maybe your friends around you are saying, well, they're not cool anymore. You want to listen to Grand Funk Railroad or whatever other <laughs> crap it was that was going on on the radio. Yeah. You have to move on to other things. And, you know, I would still be looking at teen magazines and hmm. stuff. So I had to, so, it took, a little, took a little while for me to grow up. So those records, like, uh, what are the last ones? Crossword Puzzle and Bulletin Board and stuff like that. Yeah. You couldn't find even then? Okay, so this is a great story. Okay. Uh, I think it's a great story. Okay. 1973, uh, I'm at the amusement park uh, with my friends. All of them are girls. <laughs> and so now you have the various arcade games that you can play. And, you know, spin the, the, the wheel and win this and whatever. And so... I'm looking at one of the games, and it's all these record albums. And right in the center of the albums is the new Partridge Family Crossword Puzzle album. So I zero in on that, and I get all excited. And my, my, my friends around me, though, are saying, oh, Ed, don't ever, if you ever win this thing, you cannot get that album. You just cannot do it. And we'll, we'll, we'll never talk to you again or whatever else. You know. So use peer pressure. So sure enough, I managed to win uh, an, an album. So now it's like... What am I going to take? You know, so my friends are like, they're flipping out, you know, so I ended up getting the Edgar Winter album. I had no idea who the hell Edgar Winter was <laughs> other than that he made Frankenstein. Yeah. It was a really great record. Mm-hmm. But there's this woman I'm imagining 
in white blonde hair and, you know, mm-hmm. some get up, you know, revealing his or her breast or I'm not sure what Edgar Winter was. I don't know too much about him. But anyway, it was just weird as hell to even be looking at this thing. I can't even hold this thing without flipping out. You know, who is this thing? You know, okay, but at least my friends will talk to me. So mm-hmm. yeah, so yeah, this is you know definitely peer, peer pressure definitely peer played pressure, a part yeah. in and and uh, how I had to evolve musically. Mm. <laughs> That's why Paul McCartney Paul McCartney saved me. Okay. <laughs> So did you ever go back and get those albums? Crossword puzzle. Yeah, when I got that Columbia House or whatever it was, the oh, you uh, right record deal. I got everything. Boom. Oh wow. Okay. Yep. Monkeys, Partridge Family. Boom. I was for me. I, was I never thought about it. I, you know, I, I knew that the um, Monkeys had records only because I saw the cereal box ones around. I saw Jackson Five, but I was pretty ignorant on how records worked. And so honeycomb. I, I never thought about uh, Partridge Family having actual records, even if they sang on the show. Um, I didn't know the Brady Bunch had actual records either, but they right. did, you know, but I never saw They actually them. sang. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, it wasn't until years later and I started thrift shopping because that was my easiest way of getting cheap records. And it's funny in like the late 70s when I used to do that, you could find so many copies of the first four Partridge Family albums especially the first album you know mm-hmm. just stacks and stacks of these things it's almost like everybody just got rid of that and the first family by von meter en masse they just said we're done with this stuff and it's gonna go to the thrift store and um so for years i'd be going through the bins looking for beatles stuff and i'd see like partridge family album partridge family album up to date up to date up to date partridge family you know it's like where's the beatles albums there's got to be something here and i'd eventually find some but you know it's like yeah partridge family it, it got to the point for me it's like eventually i said you know these are in really decent shape and I looked in the copy of the Partridge Family album. It had the book cover in it, the the poster, in it, uh, the picture. Yeah. In it. it was the book cover was in the second one, um, you know. And I said, you know, I should buy these just to have them. You know, it's like, yeah. and I found the shopping bag with the shopping bag. I found, you know, I don't think there was anything in the third album, but you know, it's like, you know, but it's like I just started buying them just to have them, and I didn't really play them. Although I did know, I think I love you by that time. And I said, well, that song was pretty good, but the rest of it, you know. Um, and, you know, by the time I had revisionists thinking about the monkeys, liking all their music and everything, I said, well, the Partridge family is like the obvious successor because, I mean, Bell is basically a successor to Cold Gems. And so let me give it, you know, and they kind of marketed in them the same way. And they yeah. had the kind of almost well, like some a, of the same songwriters, too. They had almost the same fate. You know, the first album the first three or four albums did really well. And then it was all downhill after downhill. that. And so I said, but that doesn't necessarily mean the quality went downhill. It just meant that the people of buying records stopped buying them. Right. Well, if you listen to this shopping bag record, yeah, I just happen to think that's the most melodic mm-hmm. of all their records. And so I enjoy that even more now than I did, you know, 40, 50 years ago, you know? Yeah. But uh, and- no, that's good stuff. Yeah. And I think both the Monkeys and Partridge Family actually improved over the years, believe it or not, you know, and I agree with you. Shopping Bag, Notebook's a pretty good album, you know, and things like that. Um, uh, probably their weakest album might be the 
aforementioned bulletin board, but then Changes was probably the weakest album of the original Monkeys album. Yeah. So. Now, I like bulletin board, of course, they, they tried to bring in some different sounds. I'm not too much of a fan of Notebook, yeah. but then again, I think the overall production of Notebook is, makes it feel kind of cheap. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I always joke around about calling it the, the Partridge Family White Album. You know, and it's got a couple of tracks on there. There's one song on there in which um, uh, it's uh, as, long, uh, as Long As You're There, I think is the song is called. And he's singing about this and that. And, and I feel like there's a cannonball that I'm looking at and I'm singing at. And I'm, Who the hell wrote this song, this line, you know, and it's just terrible. <laughs> so I kind of get angry about little things like that. And so I just don't have the, uh, I don't have the love for Notebook like I have with the other albums. But, yeah. you know, Did hey. You- did you get the Cassidy albums too that came out at the same time? And then they had Cherish, Rock Me Baby. I never really had all the albums. I think yeah. I had Cherish as a kid, but mm-hmm. um, Rock Me Baby, I didn't. I didn't know all these albums were coming out. You know, by 1972, like I said, you couldn't find them, or you heard about it, and you could have to go to the record world, uh, yeah. which was a big record chain near us. Mm-hmm. And again, it's the peer pressure, cool yeah. factor, and. Oh, well, you got to find the right guy to ask, and, you know, yeah. whatever. After a while, it became too much. 72, even though I was around, but I didn't, I wasn't an adult or anything. Seems like an interesting year. It seems like a year where they did oversaturate uh, Partridge Family. They it was. David Cassidy. But they also oversaturated, like, uh, the Jackson 5 and the Osmonds. And, uh, and the monkeys know. in the same way. Yeah, it's Think like, about it. It, it was just a weird make or break year. And it's like afterwards, for years, some of them never had a hit again, but some of them didn't have a hit. You know, like Michael Jackson, that stopped his career cold until like 79. Right, till, 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 till he did um, Off the Wall. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you they know? had a couple of one-off hits like Dancing Machine or something like that, but yeah. it was not yeah. the same for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah, Even like Donny Osmond. I mean, the yeah. Donny and Marie's uh, the variety show saved them on one level. It made them popular. Yeah. At least that they were around. But as far as the top 40 chart is yeah, concerned, sales. forget it. Yeah. <laughs> forget it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the, for, for some good reason also. But that's another story. That's yeah. another podcast. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, I love the Partridge family. I love David Cassidy and uh, all that stuff. And actually coming up this weekend, the 20th, uh, is the four-year passing of David Cassidy. Mm-hmm. So it's a little sad. Uh, somebody that was a huge, huge part of my life who gave mm-hmm. me a lot of joy had a very, very difficult life of his own. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that makes me feel kind of sad, you know. Yeah, I assume you saw him in concert. I never did. So, I mean, Cassidy, David Cassidy. Yeah, I did. I saw him in concert uh, several times in the 90s, early 90s. He went on tour and I saw him with the Beach Boys, he opened for the Beach Boys. That was a great, great concert. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen him several times in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, best story about that is that he was doing um, Harris in, uh, in, in, in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. He was doing a show there and it was very successful. And he had to bring it around to the Harris in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And so I went out there to see that show, and I met up with a whole bunch of other Partridge Family, Beatle, uh, David Cassidy fans. Mm-hmm. And it was tremendous. And the most of them were all women, so I had a time of my life, you know, <laughs> hanging out with them, and nothing was happening, but it was just being with them and enjoying their, the atmosphere of being with them. And so we saw two shows. So the first show, um, all the girls told me, look, 
take a seat in the upper area, you know, the general seating area. And the second night, you can sit with us at the table at the stage. So I figured <laughs> it was like two different experiences because the first time you're watching the whole thing and you're watching David, but you're also just watching the fans. You're right. watching the, for the crowd. And I just thought that was really cool. Mm-hmm. And the second time, it was, I was in it. You know, I yeah. was in the show. And I got to say, it was, it was incredible. And he was terrific. He was terrific. He shook my hand. You know, it, it's, you know and, and, I've, and I've seen him in concert several times since then. And uh, the last time was uh, his last show at BB Kings in 2017. Did he, I mean, you said that one story about, uh, you know, he'd give a long dissertation of how much he hated a particular song. But in general, do you think he resented all those partridge family songs or did he enjoy performing them or a little bit i think i think he came to appreciate first of all, first of all he appreciated the songwriting mm-hmm. for those songs that were really good the tony romeo's uh songs in particular uh he wrote i think i love you he wrote yes love um uh da, 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 da. it's one of those nights okay right. he wrote point me in the direction of albuquerque he wrote some of the really great songs that are on there in the catalog, Summer Days is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he would talk about that. But it just overall, I don't think he and the producer, Wes Farrell, uh, saw eye to eye. You know, David wanted to be, have a greater voice in how the records were made. And Farrell was, hey, I'm in charge here. You're just a kid, you know. <laughs> and so, um, you know, he resented that, you know. And he didn't like the, the so busy talking in the middle of the song. Yeah, I guess he figured that was just not cool or whatever. And mm-hmm. I think David suffers from some of the things, same things that I suffered from as far as, you know, worrying about the cool factor too much, you know, or, right. or whatever, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I actually would follow David Cassidy's career, even though I wasn't a huge fan. Like uh, this was actually posted the other night because I think it's the anniversary of it. Uh, and you may have seen this at the time of the Partridge family, my three sons reunion. Yes. Uh, it was this day in 1977, I believe that it. That's right. Aired. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I watched it because I was kind of curious and, you know, I didn't realize, wow, you know, it just seemed like it was the show was still on the air. You know, because it's still in reruns in 77. It's like, wow, they grew up to be big people, you know. <laughs> I'm still a little kid because they're all a little bit older than me. So it's like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, because yeah, you know, when was... you're a kid, you know, anybody that's like one or two years older just seems big, you know, compared to yourself, you know. Right, right. <laughs> no, that was a big show. I remember I enjoyed that. I was thrilled. Uh, David had his own spot in the show when he sang. And I don't remember what it was. But um, my uh, my, in looking back on it now, I've also become a huge My Three Sons fan. Yeah, and of course I was when I was a young kid. Again, watching it on reruns. Right. And there were actually four or five sons, because mm-hmm. there were three sons originally. The one one got married, and right. then they brought in Ernie. So I guess there were a total of four. Right, and, and I don't know. Them, if, I think the oldest son had triplets or something. To yes, that. one of them had triplets, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, just a matter of I don't know if they, if they, if they, um, if they, if they were uh, taking into account all the four song, four sons yeah. in the 1977 reunion. Yeah. These are the little things that become very important to me when I become obsessed about stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would love to see it again. I, I think I remember Susan Day was not on it. 
And That's I don't right. think she's ever appeared in any sort of reunion thing. The uh, only thing she's ever done with the Partridge family is on Saturday Night Live. Oh. She took the role, played uh, Laurie Partridge in one of those scenes mm-hmm. in which the Partridge family have a sing-off with the Brady Bunch kids. And there was a girl on, or there was a woman on, on the Saturday Night Live cast that used to play Jan Brady on a regular That's basis. Right. That's right. And so they made that, a, which was a great scene. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it was good to see her actually being able to have some fun with, I mean, I think David Cassidy may have some issues about being David Cassidy, being Keith Partridge, Susan Day, and I will tell you the Susan Day story in just a minute if you'd like to hear it. Sure. <laughs> a friend of mine and I went to see Susan Day perform in a staged reading of a play in New York. Hmm. Uh, it was some kind of a trial. Mm-hmm. And so she was doing that. It was just a staged reading. Mm-hmm. And after the reading was over, and it was very nice. It was, you know, it's it a good little, good, good play. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, like a wine and cheese afterwards. And you got to meet the cast. Mm-hmm. And so my friend and I, huge Potter's family fans, were <laughs> like trying to not be too geeky or whatever. So we figured, oh, we're just going to be cool. We'll shake hands with her and we'll congratulate her. Can't say anything about the Potter's family. Otherwise, it'll be gone, right? Yeah, done. Sure yeah. enough. And she and, and Susan Day couldn't be nicer. She had a nice smile. She was friendly. Shook our hands. She talked to us for a couple of like a minute or two. And sure enough, I I will take the fall that I said to her. You know, we loved you in the Partridge family, you know. And, and then she actually <laughs> she actually moonwalked or moon moon ran, uh, pacing backwards away from us as far as she finally could. <laughs> To hide behind her man, her, her husband, it was hysterical. And so my friend and I, we just, you know, we laugh about that all the time. And oh, good lord, it's uh, a classic her, story. Did you get her autograph, or was it too late? No, I think oh. it was too. You know, okay. we didn't think about that. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, what are you gonna do? Yeah. Well. So I guess she didn't have the greatest time with it. Oh well, but you know, at least she kind of recovered her career with L.A. Law. She did. And she's had a good career redeemed herself and everything so she she has nothing to be ashamed of you know she's watching this you know it's like hey you know we love you susan day yeah you were fine you know yeah you're fine you know (laughs) just a little bit just a little bit maybe on the oddball side that's all i can say (laughs) but hey um you know and you know i always thought it was weird you know looking back on you know it's like uh, Susan Crow is already gone from us yes. too, you know, and it's like, wow, you know, it's like, I mean, you expected, you know, Dave Madden uh, to be gone, you know, because he's older and stuff like that. Right. But, you know, Shirley Jones is still with us. and Right. She's yeah. with us. Yeah. Suzanne yeah. was a very nice woman yeah. and I was involved. I'm still involved to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a website called come on, get happy.com mm-hmm. and it's C M O N T E T happy. Dot com mm-hmm. and um the people that were um managing that uh became friendly with Suzanne Crow and she would um get on the bulletin board and they had a certain chat room they put up and she would come on every so often and she would chat with the fans mm-hmm. and it was just a wonderful thing to be able to experience and so um and she was very friendly. We even emailing now and again, you know. I do an email with her. And so I thought she was very friendly, very nice woman. Mm-hmm. And um, 
And she was in a regular job by that point, you know. She was managing a famous footwear or one of those kind of sneaker shoe stores or whatever. And yeah. I don't know if she was a what what level of management she was at, but whatever, that's what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And so she was a real person. And mm-hmm. so to lose her so very young, it was tragic. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, out of all of them, Shirley Jones is the only one I ever met. Um, oh, did, did you? She did a talk at um, the Palace Fine Arts uh, in San Francisco about 10 years ago, I guess. And she did talk about the Partridge family. She's more there to uh, talk about Elmer Gantry because this is on the anniversary of the the film. So that would probably tell you what year it was, Uh, like the 60th anniversary or 50th 50th anniversary of it, I think. So that would have been 2012 then. Okay. Yeah. So that's something like that. Yeah, and unfortunately didn't get her autograph, but that's okay. Uh, but got like front row seats, so she was like, you know, <laughs> as close as my computer is, you know, almost is like so. Yeah. It's really cool, and she's very elegant, very nice. Uh, and she did talk about the Partridge family, and she's very funny and everything, saying, you know, it's like I wish I could be on the songs more, but they mixed me out of those records. Yes, you know? yes, <laughs> you know? and. Uh, but she said she was she had a blast doing them and stuff like that, and yeah. uh, she knew it was really David's baby, as it were. You know, she was just. Well, they were very they were very interesting as how the records were made. Yeah. Um, as far as recording the records, David Cassidy and Shirley Jones were the only ones from the cast that recorded on them. Right. But they, as she indicated, on the records themselves, she was mixed very low, and there were background singers who were originally signed to do all the records for the Partridge family. Right. So you had Tom and John Bear, their mm-hmm. brothers, uh, Ron Hicklin and Jackie Ward. And uh, those were the singers that did the records. So Jackie would sing the Shirley Jones and the Susan Day parts. <laughs> and, so, um, and so they would mix her higher on the actual records. And then when they did the mix for the TV show, they would mix Shirley Jones's vocals a little higher, mm-hmm. not dramatic, dramatic, dramatically higher, but right. I don't think. But um, so well, certainly way, when she was on screen, you know, yeah, because you, you know, obviously she's singing that want to make you sound like you're listening to her. I guess, yeah. I know. Well, the funny thing is that they put so much work into these records. I mean, they were really <laughs> solid records that mm-hmm. you would think that someone who's a professional like Shirley Jones and they would have maybe worked with her a little bit and said, you know what? We really would like to put you on the records more, Yeah, you know, maybe put you in the sound and even give you your own solo song. Yeah. Every, maybe every other album or something like yeah, that. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't do the that. Kid, Did, yeah. Wasn't it the, just the Christmas album? Wasn't, didn't she get only on the Christmas album? Yeah. Does she have yeah. actual vocals on there? Yeah. Uh, they did a, uh, there's a story, uh, an episode, in the, I think the second season, mm-hmm. where they uh, it's an e- ecological episode uh, where they're trying to save whales, the humpback whale. Oh yeah. And so they record a song about about uh, called the whale song. Yeah. And they make that as part of the episode, and Shirley right. Jones or Shirley Partridge sings the song. Never ever thought to release it. I mean, yeah. you think that it this was the ecological time. Yeah. This was something that would have been a hit record if they right. had the brains to put it out, you know, yeah. and it might have given the Partridge family even a tiny bit of credibility. Yeah. You know, and uh, <laughs> people at Bell Records never thought about it. And so it's uh, it's just one of the dark markets to talk marks on 
yeah. on Bell Records as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. I found it weird on Partridge Family and researching it, and I got the books about the TV series and the collectibles and everything like that, uh, that there were songs that just were never released, at least back in the day. I mean, they've released some of them since. And, of course, you can get all the DVDs now, so have all the songs. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that there's that song called Together that they sing like three or four times in the first few episodes – not on the first album, not no. on any album. You know, no. it's like, wow, because it wasn't the best song in the world, but it's memorable. It's catchy enough. Right. And it's like, right. could have put it on the first album. Why could not? have been on the first album. It should yeah. have been on the first album. Yeah. It was originally re- initially released on uh, a Partridge Family Greatest Hits CD maybe 20 years ago. Right, right. <laughs> Um, then, you know the two theme songs. You, uh, you know, is when we're singing, and then come on, get happy. Essentially, the same song with different lyrics. But you know, I don't think those made it on the records, if I remember correctly, no, originally. No, not at all. Not at you all. Know. And uh, come on, get happy was also put on a greatest hits, several greatest yeah. hits CDs, but not when we're not when we're singing. Yeah. Um, and it, it just seems like that would have been an obvious hit. Of course, they never put out theme from the monkeys as a single, but it seems right. like that would have been an obvious hit too. I mean, I think it was in a couple other countries, but not in America at places. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so right. um, interesting marketing on all this stuff. It is. It is. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. Now, um, this just came to me, but we were talking about all these other groups. Were you ever an Archie's fan, or did that not that pass you by? <laughs> so the Archie's were part of that early early influence. Yeah. You know, from the you know the 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 uh, all the the bubblegum type records yeah. that came out. The the um uh the Ron Dante Rodgers, <laughs> but he also had what was it? Um come on. No, well little Willie Willie came won't come came a little bit later on. That was somebody else I think. Um other records oh, I, that were like, uh, like banana splits or uh, well, banana splits uh, listen to some of that. Even the Hardy Boys, to... Groovy Ghoulies, all those Saturday morning shows. Right. <laughs> right. Groovy Ghoulie. And I was that was that was past me, so I wasn't yeah. into that. Yeah. But um Jesus. Uh, oh excuse me, I apologize. I shouldn't say that on, on <laughs> that's okay. Whatever. Um and then of course it'll Chuck come to me when I'm gonna make it off. Yeah. <laughs> um you know, of course, the Chipmunks, Alvin Show, and everything—they had—they they were actually the precursors of all this stuff. Right. Well, of course, yeah. The 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 the, uh, the Chipmunks record, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, the Christmas record is famous. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that's, that's all part of the. There was, uh, oh my God, I can't think of the. Nineteen sixty-nine. You know, and of course, "Build Me Up Buttercup" is my favorite record from that period. Um, nineteen sixty-nine. I can't think of the Dawn song. But uh, anyway, hell, I'm 61 years old. What am I going to do? It comes <laughs> well, and it goes sometimes. Well, I mean, uh, we're talking about sugar, sugar. Is that what you're meaning? Or, uh, well, just, sugar, uh, sugar, sugar, yeah. sugar was, 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 a, was a huge hit. I remember that. I remember enjoying the Archies and watching the Archies TV show. Mm-hmm. And then I think uh, there was another one that was uh, another <coughs> hit. Um, uh, but I can't remember the name of that one right now. But oh, um, I enjoyed I enjoy Jingle Jangle, was it? Yeah. Or something Jingle like Jangle that. and Bang Shangalang. You know? Yeah, Bang Shangalanger <laughs> and there's something. I mean, I like their stuff, and I always yeah. like that sound. Anything yeah. from where I heard from any other group, I always yeah. kind of went with that type of sound. So I love the bubblegum sound. Yeah. You know, I love. I liked uh, the 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 Bugaloos. Yeah. Remember the Bugaloos? I mean, yeah. I thought that was the greatest thing. You know. Yeah. Well, you know, the other one, uh, H.R. Puffin stuff. They put out a, a, a mini album at least, and then. 
another one, Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> I like Josie and the Pussycats. Um, what else? Uh, they the tried with things like Pebbles and Bam Bam didn't work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, Although uh, I'll tell you one thing, that one song, um, uh, when she da, da, the the song that I put at the end of the yep, end of the Flintstone episodes. Oh, put love in your heart. Daddy's never fight and mommy's never win. Da, da, da. Oh my God, I can't think of that one now either. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, see, well, I all these bubblegum stuff, 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 stuff you know? isn't all winners. I mean, you know. Like... Let the sun shine in. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah, it's great stuff. <laughs> but I I never knew, you know, when all that stuff came out, you know, how records were marketed or anything. I mean, yeah. because it's so yeah. bizarre, you know, like I said, to have a record on the back of the cereal box and you just cut it out and play it, <laughs> you know. Tracy. Tracy by the Cufflinks. That's oh, the other yeah. Ron Dante song yeah. that I yeah. absolutely loved. Yeah. That's it. Tracy. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah. Bump up, sing along. Bump up, bump, 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 bump. Great stuff, man. And if Great you, stuff. If you go into the archives, um, we did interview uh, Ron Dante, uh, Charles Rosene and I, and mm-hmm. he does talk about that. And uh, we were talking about him mainly because he's currently on tour with the Turtles. And, That's right. Uh, he says, yeah, Tracy was my attempt to do like a happy together because it has the bop, 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 bop right, type right. stuff in it, you know. He says, I don't know if it quite came off, but it was kind of memorable. And uh, I don't know if you got uh, Ron Dante's Funhouse, a two-disc set that has just like various odds and ends. It has a lot of Archie stuff, but it has stuff like from him doing the Chan Clan from Charlie Chan Hanna-Barbera cartoons and even some ads for like Kent cigarettes and stuff. It's a really interesting compilation of it. Just I'll have to look to see if it's on Spotify. I do a lot uh, of Spotify it's just nowadays. It's weird Ron Dante yeah. compilation, but you know, it has a cover by Dan Parent, who's an Archie artist currently, and so it has that total Archie vibe, you know, even though it's not called the Archies, but I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, he, he, you can tell, you know, because it's called Funhouse, obviously, and it even has the Archie's TV Funhouse theme song, which was never released to record before and stuff like that. So, so does Ron Dante have access to the name Archie's, or is that something he's... He has more access to it than he used to, I'll put it that way. Um, it's not like he owns it. I mean, the Archie family, or the family that always has owned Archie still owns it, but they understand Ron Dante's importance. So he, he gets to work with that name and perform under mm-hmm. that name. So he yeah. has, whereas, yeah, he used to get in trouble for doing that. You know, you can't perform on under the Archie's name. He'd still perform, Tracy. but yeah, he would just perform as Ron Dante. Maybe. Well, just like with the monkeys, with the Archies, you know, I mean, the monkeys, like, <laughs> the monkeys would go out on tour. They couldn't use their logo. Yeah. I mean, yeah. who the hell yeah. comes up with this stuff? So it was, it was, it was a similar situation like that. I yeah. think now, Archie Publications, they love it because it's free publicity. They didn't see it that way back in the day, but now they do. So, you know, yeah. they're happy with Ron. Um, and I think they've since reissued all the albums with their original covers and configurations and everything. Whereas for the longest time, like a couple of the albums were released as Ron Dante albums, even though they were actually Archie's albums. Yeah. Was, and they gave it a different name. It was like, Ron Dante, Sugar Sugar, you know, which was not the original name of that album. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> Ron right, right. Dante, Jingle Jangle, you know, and it's like, well, that wasn't the name of that album either, you know, but <laughs> they, like I said, they've since come to an agreement over such That's things, good. Which I became, I became more aware of Ron Dante uh, 
to Barry Manilow. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Because he was co-producing, yeah. he co-produced Barry Manilow's first six or so seven albums. Yeah. And um, so I was impressed with the way those records were made. And, uh, and then I looked him up and I realized he was the voice of the Archies. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, this goes, he goes back to that. And then he made this and he did that and he yeah. produced, you know, and so I was like, wow. So all these things kind of just go into the same group. Manilow, uh, uh, Tony Orlando was um, uh, uh, originally, I think he originally produced or, or whatever. He was involved with Manilow's first record. Hmm. And uh, he rearranged uh, Manilow's great song, Could It Be Magic? Hmm. Some kind of a, a more up-tempo song and rearranged the words and so forth. And it's a, eh, it's a passable record, <laughs> you know. I mean, that Tony Orlando could have made back then if he had wanted to, you know, or whatever. And, of course, uh, Manilow's version is so much better. And then what? But at the same time, Donna Summer made it into a great disco record. Right. So it's just, you know, it's just hysterical, you know. Yeah. Here we were, so, this my precious Chopin prelude and all this kind of stuff. And, and, oh, we can't have this other thing. And then, you know, six months later, Donna Summer comes out with <laughs> her version of it, you know. So. Yeah. And I didn't even know that at first. And then I figured it out. Uh, I always have the, I think this is a funny story, too. And you know this, I'm sure. It's like, uh, Barry Manilow sings, I write the songs. And it wasn't written by him. <laughs> it's written by Bruce Johnston of the Beach Boys. Right. So, well, know. here's here's the thing about that, that song that 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 drives infuriates me to this yeah. day. I mean, that num- number one, the fact that nobody understands the fact that Barry did not write the song, or they think that he wrote the song, and and yeah, Bruce Johnston should get the credit. And uh, Johnston has done quite a bit. He done Johnston's solo work really should be given a bit more. Um, promotion or, yeah. or whatever marketed whatever because um i i don't know somehow i think he kind of gets the short end of the stick with the beast boys you know i think that if you look if you listen to the sale on podcast there's an early episode in there where they go through a lot of the early bruce johnston stuff yeah. and so you might want to listen to that and and uh, and just just hear his some of that stuff um i think he's quite good but anyway um the thing with uh, that ties all this in together. Barry Manilow and uh, was on Arista Records with Clive Davis being the um, uh, the, the uh, CEO of, Clive, of 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 Arista Records. Um, Arista Records is um, born out of Bell Records, right? Right, because uh, Bar- Clive Davis bought Bell Records, then he assumed the CEO's position. He got rid of most of the artists from Bell Records. Uh, <laughs> David Cassidy was kept on for a little while and then he moved over to RCA. Yeah. So, and while David was with RCA, he gets the song. I write the songs because he was working with Bruce, with Bruce Johnston and Carl Wilson on mm-hmm. one of his solo albums. Mm-hmm. So Bruce Johnston gives him, I write the songs mm-hmm. and he records. I write the songs arranged by Bruce Johnston and he records his song and sure as heck, Clive Davis I must have given the demo that David Cassidy made to, Dave, to Barry Manilow and said, you're the one that can make a hit record out of this. Hmm. And it just seems to me that David Cassidy kind of got screwed on that, and that drives me up the wall. <laughs> and then 10 years later, David Cassidy makes a record for Arister 
under the UK label only. Mm. Now, it's a terrific record called Romance. Mm. Never ever saw it in the US, never went anywhere. And you know that Clive Davis must have had a hand in that too. So mm. <laughs> he's not one of my favorite people. <laughs> I don't know why he hated David Cassidy so much, but I don't know. Um, it just as an aside, which is kind of funny, it's always it's interesting when you know, I don't know if that uh, I write the songs is considered Barry Manilow's biggest hits, but it is a big hit, and yeah. uh, you know, it, it just reminds me of it's just funny when songwriters don't have their biggest hit be a song they've written. Uh, yeah. an example would be Harry Nielsen, you know, he wrote songs for monkeys and everybody. Yeah, yet his biggest hit is Without You, written by Badfinger. So, so go really, I did not know that. I thought he wrote that. No, no. So it's written by uh, Tom Evans and uh, um, who's the other guy? Uh, Peter Ham. Okay. Uh, Badfinger, and right, it was right, right. on uh, the Badfinger album called No Dice, and their version isn't bad. But you know, when they sing it, they they kind of go, "Can't live if living Can't. was without you. Mm-hmm. Can't live." You know, and then it's Nielsen who sold it when he goes, Can't live! <laughs> oh, it's a great record. Great record. <laughs> so, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I get it, but it's just kind of sad in a certain way that uh, Nielsen, he did have a couple hits, like he wrote Coconut, he wrote Me and My Arrow, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, even Everybody's Talking, he didn't write that one. That's a big no, hit. No, too, no, no. You know? And it's like, you know, it's like for someone who had, Big hits for other people, like One by Three Dog Night or Cuddly Toy by the Monkeys or something. He wrote like that. One, huh? I didn't he know that. Yeah, he one couldn't catch a break for himself. You know, it's kind of. I love One. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. 1969. Yeah. I'm a big Harry Nielsen fan, so it's like uh, kind of it, he, it, you know, you probably would be too if you explored him a little further. You say, oh, he has some pretty good stuff, especially sure. if you get his uh, mid 60s to early 70s stuff like 67 to 74 after that it, he kind of peters off but you know that little window well the album with lennon i don't think worked out all that well but. that's where that's where it cuts off you know he, he yeah. did a couple okay things after that but his voice was shot uh, he, he lost it on the pussycats album and you know the only thing interesting about the pussycats album is that lennon's on the cover and he produced it other than that it's like yeah. You know, Nielsen's voice, you just go, oh. <laughs> because well, the yeah, I mean, album, I really should. This album called a, a Little Touch of Nielsen in the Lo- Night. And it's the same as what is commonplace now. Linda Ronstadt's done it, uh, Rod Stewart's done it, where you do the American Songbook. But okay. Nielsen did it back in 73. Well, Ringo did it before that with Sentimental Journey. Sentimental Journey. Nobody cared back then. They said, why are they singing this old crap? Now it's commonplace to sing. And then McCartney finally did one with Kisses on the Bottom. Same type of thing, you know. It's like, um, but back when Nielsen did it, you know, if you ever listen to the documentary, uh, there's a good documentary about uh, Nielsen. And uh, who is the, I can't think of his name. Who is the producer of Ringo's two biggest albums? Um, uh, Um, Okay, hold on. I know who you're thinking about. I can't look it up right now because I can't move around on my computer. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah um, it'll come to me. I don't know why I'm I'm blanking on him. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he produced the Pointer Sisters years later. He did yeah. the two biggest Harry Nielsen albums, and so uh, when Nielsen had a big hit with Nielsen Schmielsen, which had "Without You," he said, mm-hmm. "All right, that's your revolver. Your next album, Son of Schmielsen, is going to be your mm-hmm. Sergeant Pepper." 
Yeah. Nielsen thought otherwise. Even though there's good stuff on Son of Schmielsen, it's like he drops the f bomb on the sh- on the on the oh, record. That's too bad. And uh, then uh, after that, it goes all right. Well, you got your, got that out of your system. Now let's make your Sergeant Pepper. And Nielsen says, "Nah, I want to do uh, a standards album." And it's like, what? No, no, you don't want to do a standards album now. You save that till you're older. You know, you do a good pop rock album right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. when they parted ways. Uh, he got Derek Taylor to produce that album. And, uh, you know, it's actually a really good album. But, you know, in retrospect, you go, you know, Nielsen was right because he lost his voice after that. But, you know, they wouldn't have known that yeah. Richard Perry is who you're talking Richard about. Perry, thank you yes. very much. You know, yeah. for some reason, you know, I was saying Phil Spector, no, no. Yeah, I'm trying no, no. to read the back of the album in my head, you know. Yeah, Richard <laughs> Perry, yes. And Richard Perry wrote uh, uh, his autobiography in recent times, and he talks about that very thing. And the amazing thing about Richard Perry is he could, he knew how to make a good album appropriate for a person and when they stopped using him the careers went like that you know it's like he did it with tiny tim tiny tim has an excellent album that suits his personality did it with ringo and goodnight vienna uh did it with uh nielsen schmielsen his son is schmielsen and then afterward you know nothing because they're very kind of eccentric type of performers that need like a certain type of production style you know to to make it work i always thought you know when ringo was really dying in the late 70s and you know even more recently after mark hudson i said why doesn't he reconnect with richard perry just once just once you know just make one more great album but now they're all getting kind of long in the tooth so who knows yeah the magic probably wouldn't return but i was um i was listening to that talk more talk uh podcast and there was an episode on ringo star i'm not sure what the particular episode is but they talk about the uh change in producer and that how why he left richard perry they had some kind of a falling out from what i understand And but, uh, I've heard that too, but I don't know goes. the details. No. Unless Richard Perry talks about his autobiography, because on the yeah. Nielsen, on the Nielsen documentary, he only really talks about his relationship with Harry Nielsen, and only his connection to Ringo was that Ringo was on Harry's sessions, and uh, Harry was on Ringo's sessions. But other yeah. than that, he didn't talk about any falling out with Ringo. He just talked about a falling out with Harry. Because you, know, you so. want, because you, because it, it doesn't pay for him to say that he had falling out with Ringo Starr. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, you know, he he was a good producer. You know, he's yeah. he's probably I, I think he's just retired now. But I mean, he did all the big hits the Pointer Sisters had for years. And any song that you know uh, by the Pointer Sisters, he probably did, unless it was one of their early ones like Salt Peanuts or. <laughs> can you can can or whatever it's called you know sure. it's like but you know any of the big ones he's so shy uh mm-hmm. you know neutron dance uh jump for my love or whatever it is jump all for my those, love was a big yeah, one yeah yeah all those ones uh all produced by richard perry yeah so <laughs> and uh point and the pointer sisters won the carol Burnett show virtually every week yeah she must have been she must have been her her, her favorite uh group yeah and that's another thing you said you're interested in. Uh, you know, I mentioned I looked you up, and you mentioned the oh, Mets, no. and uh, but also you're interested in Carol Burnett, and you're interested in the Honeymooners. So you see, I 
I found out some Thank you. Oh, you. no, no. <laughs> got to be careful what you got to be careful what you put on on Facebook. But uh but yeah, I love the honeymooners. Uh, honeymooners my father and I connected on the honeymooners when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I've I've enjoyed that for years and and I've enjoyed all kinds of variety shows, Sunny and Cher. Yeah. And then the Carol Burnett is just genius, you know. Yes. You know. <laughs> I, I try to get as many episodes like I just finally got the set. I don't know why I skipped it over the years. Uh, Dean Martin show. It was like six disc set and it has like episode, you know, just random ones, but at least they're complete episodes. Yeah. Um, a few months ago, I got a five disc set of Cher, her solo series between the two Sonny and Cher shows. Okay. You know, and I remember that from back in the day and uh yeah, I got all the laugh-ins. I got what about what, what about the Sunny Bono comedy review? I would love to have even one episode of that because I honestly don't think I ever saw it when it came on. Um, and I, I was looking at the schedule, and it, I can't even remember. I was probably, I think they put it against some show I watched. I don't remember. Yeah. I'd have to I was such up. a huge fan of Sunny and Cher. I yeah. was so broken up when they broke up. Yeah. I refused to watch the Cher show, although I did eventually oh. watch it. Oh. And I was so angry with Cher. And nowadays, I'm more angry with Sonny Bono for the way he or she was treated. And it's just yeah. it's unbelievable, yeah. the crap no. that goes on. I mean, I I watched the Sonny and Cher comedy era the whole time it was on. And it was sad they divorced and everything. Didn't know all the background yeah. story. I had no clue and didn't even know until, like, years later that Sonny had the Sonny comedy review you know it's like when was that on you know it was yeah. only on like 13 three weeks, weeks maybe if it you, was know, three weeks, it, you yeah. know but yeah and then but I remember this the share show really well and so I go yeah. and apparently it was they're both broadcast the same night just on different networks uh so I must have been watching something else and by the time Cher came on, that show was canceled, too. I don't know what, you know, or yeah. I was just that much of a fan of Cher. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and I was actually kind of disappointed when they reunited as Sonny and Cher again, <laughs> even though it I was, was very awkward. They separated. Yeah. You know, because, was, you know, the later Sonny and Cher show wasn't as good. And so I was like, eh, you know, it's like it, it felt kind of flat. I mean, yeah. I still kind of enjoyed it, but it was it was like nostalgic me you know yeah. <laughs> early nostalgia for me you know i was yeah. only 16 but uh whatever something along those lines yeah. but my sister nancy was the one that was the, my big influence on music and virtually my whole life actually yeah. she's the one that took me to see sunny and share at mm. national coliseum That's cool. 1971 and so i got to see them during their prime uh then their tv series mm. and uh I, I wanted to ask you, you mentioning talk about comedy um, I, I was a big, big fan also of, um, of, uh, oh crap, from, uh, uh, Young Frankenstein. Oh, Marty Feldman. Marty Feldman. Marty Feldman's Comedy Machine. Yes. And so we used I to watch that, that all the time. Yeah, I saw that My dad that. actually let me stay up. Because for me, TV shows, this is kind of funny before, you know, you say what you're going to say is, that, uh, people always say, oh, that show was too violent or that show was too sexy. My parents would let me, my parents would let me watch anything as long as it wasn't on too late. Uh, and then they'd make exceptions for certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was one of them. It was the Marty Feldman comedy machine. And I was upset a few years ago, they were going to put it out on DVD and then some sort of rights issue 
just um, kept it off a of DVD. It was going to be the complete series. I was like, yes, and, and so I'm still waiting. I doubt it'll ever come out. At least I'd have to look time. to see if it's on YouTube and some. You no, know, they have bits way. of it on YouTube. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, so I thought he funny. was so I did funny. find ones. I didn't. I, you know, I was like five years old or four years old when that originally aired, and the one that stuck in my mind, and it is on YouTube, but this shows you how the memory works. You know, is this one where Marty Feldman's wife is like uh asleep in the bed or i forgot i've watched it in recent times i forgot or she's just jabbering away it's almost like a benny hill thing <laughs> and she goes to sleep and he gets on he gets in his little uh mini car as like a volkswagen or something and then he flies on a jet and he goes off to this like deserted island and he's with this sexy girl and they start making out <laughs> and then he looks at his watch and he gets in the plane and get back. the footage of the uh, car and he gets back home <laughs> and the wife is, you know, still, still jabbering away. <laughs> you know, he's not noticed that he left. You know, yes, dear. Yes, dear. You know, and I think they did, like I said, I think they did it on Benny Hill too, but they did do it yeah. on Marty Feldman. It, and I just remembered it all this year. It's just that high speed stuff. And so, yeah, that primed me for uh, Monty Python, even though it was already on the air in England. I never saw it until years later you yeah, know. it came up a little bit late i think i got into monty, Py- monty python after i saw the movies i mean my mother would j- jumped up and down over the life of brian and that yeah. was we were never allowed to see anything remotely close to monty python because of that because for catholic yeah. oh, and okay. so that was nuts so uh yeah. and then years later as we'd be able to be a bit more junior high or high school all of a sudden monty python became the thing you know yeah and uh, so i enjoyed that like I said, you know, my parents didn't care about that. I mean, there's some nudity in Monty Python, and my parents didn't care that I would see that. They were more concerned that it was on at 10 p.m. So, you know, it oh, was okay. a special treat if I got to stay up to watch yeah. Monty Python. And if you did yeah. your homework. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, it, and like I said, it, it, and if they did show a little bit of nipple or something like that, my parents yeah. didn't go like that. They just yeah, said, yeah. Eh, it's just Mark. He's growing up. He'll, he'll learn it soon. Enough. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. That's it. Um, yeah. Life of Brian. Uh, we, we grew up, you know, going to church. We weren't Catholic or Protestant, but you know, my parents, the only thing my parents did on that film is that they went to see it first, but I mm-hmm. think they went to see it first just as a date. They weren't right. Censoring it for us kids. And then like a week later, uh, you know, I got to see it with my mom or something like that. And, uh, you know, the only thing my mom, and she told me after the fact, the only thing she was kind of semi-concerned with is there's one scene, oh, here's my dog, uh, one scene with uh, full frontal nudity, both male and female. And, you know, it's like my mom, after after I saw Life of Brian, she says, "Uh, is that of any concern to you one way or the other? And she yeah, it's nudity. I don't care. You know, so, okay, just checking, you know, if there is, a, you know, if like I was traumatized because I saw yeah. I male or female frontal nudity and it's like, mm, yeah. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> what about Steve Martin? Were you doing oh, yeah. Fantasy oh, Martin? Oh, yeah. I had, I had the first album memorized. I probably still could do it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it, it's funny. It's not <laughs> that great of an album in a certain respect you know for being it's just an album of its time but i find it hysterically funny but i can see why people wouldn't because you know and if you ever saw or uh read um 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> red. It's cute. <laughs> this is Lulu. Um, if you ever saw or read uh, Steve Martin's uh, biography about his stand-up years that he put out a few years ago, um, he kind of hits the nail on the head of what he calls non-comedy. He would do this stuff that he wasn't. Re- it didn't really have a punchline. And then it got to the point where he was like the Beatles or David Cassidy or any of the people we've been talking about, where he didn't even have to say anything. He'd just be out on stage and just people would just cheer endlessly. And it's like, you know, I mean, for a while he loved it and then it got on his nerves and that's why he had to quit. And so he did. And he basically just in 1981, just I'm done, you know, and didn't tell anybody. You know, he, he fulfilled all his uh, commitments he had at the time, yeah. and he just stopped. He didn't tell anybody he stopped. He just stopped, you know. And, you know, like, I find it amazing that you can stop yeah. because, you know, here's this guy. He's been doing comedy, writing, and so forth all these years, and finally he makes it huge with the Let's yeah. Get Small at record and the wild and crazy guy. Yeah. And I think the next one was comedy is pretty, eh, that's not yeah. so hot. Yeah. But I thought those, those first two albums were terrific. I like yeah. yourself. I had memorized them, and um, uh, and I, I I loved them. I loved the first one better. First one because it was more intimate. Yeah, you know, he was very him in the audience, and he was yeah. really wasn't like I said trying to tell jokes. Yeah. It was just telling these 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 whatever observations. Wouldn't he call them observations yeah. or whatever? But it was this. Well, the second was a bit more high tech. It was more. Yeah. Uh, the huge audience, the huge stadiums, or whatever, and it was, uh, you know, whatever the song was, I forget what it was, King Tut, you know. Yeah. So I mean, I enjoyed it, and 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 I thought it's good. When he turned around in the '80s, he started making movies. Yeah. Uh he made that one about Los Angeles. Well, that was great, and uh, you know, so I I, I like more of those kind of things than I did, like his uh, the big film that he made about. Um, um, you know, when he was a, a poor black child growing oh, up, the jerk? <laughs> whatever it's called, the jerk. Yeah. You know, I mean, th- th- that was funny in its own way, but uh, yeah. I kind of like his stuff post 85. Uh, post, yeah. Uh, yeah. The only thing 80s. I didn't like is when he got too much into kind of the schmaltzy stuff, you know, where he's doing too much um, father of the bride, parenthood type stuff. And then I'm what, sorry, I'm going to stop you there. Okay, but I what I thought was worse, those movies. What I thought was worse, so and I hope you agree with this because if you're a honeymooners fan, maybe even a Bilko fan, is when he did Sergeant Bilko and he did Pink Panther. You know, it's like why do they get killing me? To do these things? You're killing me. Why are you doing this? <laughs> Talk about having to fulfill a contract. Yeah, so I don't I know mean, if that was like, the reason or not, but I was that, like, oh, Steve, I go touch. back to the stand-up. You know, anything. Yeah. No, yeah. don't do that. Yeah. So. But, um, actually, I, if, you, I, if you've seen him in recent times, he actually does stand up now. But he does okay. it under the guise of playing the banjo. You know, he'll yes, go he out does. and he'll do comedy material between songs. So he's done it again, but he does it on his own terms. So I'm proud of him for that, that he actually yeah. found a way to fit it into the thing without all the screaming fans. You know? Yeah. And, and I like the work he does with Martin Short. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I don't think it doesn't always hit all the... Uh, hit all that all the time but the two of them are just terrific together yeah. and the movie the three amigos one of the funniest movies of all time yeah. i don't i mean i don't i know that it probably at the, back in 1986 or whenever the heck it came out 
It wasn't a huge movie. It, no. it, it deserves every raving, every, 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 every bit of credit that it could possibly yeah. get. It's hysterical. Although my favorite scene in that movie, I can say my favorite scene in probably any Steve Martin movie. Uh, my favorite scene is when they're thirsty and they're drinking out of their canteens and the one gets the big glob of just sand and dirt in his skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite joke in that one. But, you know, there's there's some good stuff in that. I like it when they're camping and they and they sing the song right. and, uh, and 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 uh, that 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 just Oh. The whole thing is just brilliant. All right. Martin Actually, it made great, me think you know? of one other funny thing. I love that. He goes, up here, up here, look up here, up here. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and they're like, huh, what? <laughs> um, Good stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, we're on the same wavelength on a lot of stuff. Uh, um, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, Carol Burnett is the favorite. Uh, blah, blah. What else? I wasn't into the Honeymooners as much. Um. I wasn't even, you know, my, you, you, I assume you like all the New York type sitcoms. So you like Odd Yeah, the couple. Odd Couple. Yeah. I like all that. The Odd Couple I always liked. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to get into the Honeymooners. Um, and I think a lot of it had to do with, I just thought it was uh, Ralph Cramden just yelling at people. And I said, whatever. And and I think it took me a while to get into Sergeant Bilko because I thought the same type of thing. It's just Phil Silver's yelling at people. I wasn't... Mm. Uh, getting this as a kid you know and then later i understand understood the nuance uh, and on jackie gleason i kind of got into him more when uh a local tv station in the 80s played his american scene magazine which didn't have the honeymooners on it at all but it showed his versatility in playing different characters and so then i appreciated gleason's talent because when he was just going you got a big mouth and to the moon and all this stuff. I was like, oh. Well, when we were kids, we used to watch the Jackie Gleason show, yeah. which aired, I think it's like 1970, 71. Yeah. And so you saw the whole variety bit and you saw they would do a honeymoon sketch. every, Not every week, but they would do it yeah. uh, a, a bit. But they would do it, um, uh, all the different characters that he played. And, uh, and that was always fun. I enjoyed it. And uh, and I particularly enjoyed the the musical episodes of the Honeymooners that they did. There was a, about twelve episodes of that that they did. Yeah. And um, talk about earlier comedy. I was never a big fan of Sergeant Bilko. It was a little bit before my time. Yeah. I was more into Mikhail's Navy with Ernest Borgnine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think his name is Carl Ballantyne, oh, Tim yeah. Conway's in that. Yeah. I mean, that's just a brilliant series. And Joe Flynn. Joe Flynn. Who played the, 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 uh, Gavin McLeod wasn't known, but looking. And he was in there, show, too. Uh, but, and then you got a couple people that actually were on Bilko on that show. But, you know. Yeah. And uh, it was a pretty much interchangeable show. I mean, it's like uh, some other shows where they're pretty much going to just rewrite it uh, as a Navy as opposed to an army yeah. or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed that. I love Call 54, Where Are You? Yeah. Also a New York show. Yeah. Now, I, to... All those ones like that, I never saw originally. And and it took me years to see him because I, I did a recent uh, podcast with this guy named Steve Beverly, who's a television historian. And I was saying in the early 70s, like other than say, I Love Lucy, black and white TV was verboten. Yeah, they'd show Gilligan's Island, but never the black and white season. They'd show mm-hmm. I Dream of Jeannie, but never the right. black and white season. Never the know. black and white season. Um, yeah. I, and I was saying, you know, Andy Griffith's show, you know, they'd talk about how great of an actor Don Knotts was, and I was like, he's never on the show. 
I didn't know there was five seasons of black and white shows, you know. Well, and, I think a lot of that came out of MD, uh, um, um, Nick at Night and then TV yep. Land. That's when and I started that, seeing uh, that exposed stuff, all those shows, Don. And, and then I go, all ah, of that. yes. That's when there's yeah, some so. good stuff. And so, Absolutely. yeah, I never saw the original Honeymooners. In fact, the first Honeymooners I think I saw, I didn't even see the the ones you're talking about was when they did the reunion movies in the mid seventies. That's right. Yes. And I was like, what is this? I don't get it. You know, it's like, um, ironically, and since we're talking about this, they finally put out the Christmas episode where they do a Christmas Carol parody. Apparently it's never been on home video till this year. It's one of the okay. later honeymooners. If you like everything honeymooners, it was maybe right. seven. 1977 or something like that you know i'll have to look has, into that yeah. it has audrey meadows and it has i think jane keen jane keen uh, plays yeah, Trixie, yeah. yeah and then of course um art carney, art carney. i mean i love i love the i love the honeymooners <laughs> also because i was becoming i had also become a laurel and hardy fan oh cool and so i i just i enjoyed that stuff my friend is a huge laurel and hardy fan and mm-hmm. so it just this this the development from Lowell and Hardy to the Honeymooners and to the Flintstones and then yeah. God knows what, and uh, and so I, you know, so that I'm not, I I couldn't not quote you, Laurel and Hardy, but he loved <laughs> Lowell and Hardy. He loves Lowell and Hardy, and he loves the uh, the Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. And so they would. So these are also like influences that I would have. Yeah. But um, the honeymooners kind of overrode a lot of stuff. You know, yeah. Abbott and Costello, to some degree, is a bit silly, I think, at times. But yeah. it still has some great routines. But all that stuff, eventually, with home video and everything, made it into my collection. So I have yeah. all that stuff. So cool. And Very cool. Whereas before, like using Laurel, as a, Laurel and Hardy as, as an example, the only thing you'd ever see is like Babes in Toyland, you know, the March of the Women's yes, Soldiers. Right. It's like. Right. Surely they had other movies. <laughs> you know, don't they play yeah. anything? And Abbott and Costello, they might play Meet Frankenstein, and that's about it. And it's like I never saw any of the other ones. And finally, I get to see all of them. So I like, yes, you know. And yeah. I'd see their TV shows sometimes, but you know, it's like uh, that's the one thing I loved about, especially DVDs. It's like everything I finally would want to see has come out, except for the Marty Feldman comedy show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> comedy yeah, machine. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Someday, someday, yes. right? Yes, yes. Um, like, the, like all the Potter's family music that will never see the light of day because of lawsuits and God knows what, so. Yeah. But um, I have really seen all the episodes, not all the cartoons, though. Well, I probably saw them when they originally aired, but, you know. I yeah. know. Um, well, I, I, like, I, I've I gotten talk about uh, Facebook and what I, look, what I look like on, look at on that, is I joined a Hanna-Barbera group. And I was talking to some people, the people, and I don't know who these people are that are on the group or whatever. But they're talking about, you know, what about having, having this show or watching that show? I said, I'm 60 years old. I know I have a lot of things that I do that are probably for my entertainment, but I can't imagine sitting back and watching a full season of Josie and the Pussycats or God knows whatever. <laughs> I mean, I just, I mean, I'll enjoy it from the memories of yeah. back in the day and maybe I'll watch a quick clip here and there, but yeah. no, I'm not going to sit there and watch Huckleberry Hound again. I mean, you know, I yeah. did when I was six years old, yeah. but you know. <laughs> I, I, have to say, I, I, I have to say, I have all that stuff, but I haven't watched all of it. I mean, what I do is, you know, I, 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 I and I should watch more of it now. Uh, live action TV shows, yes. I mean, I made a point to buy every Andy Griffith show, every you know 
fill in the blank show. Yeah. And, you know, for the purposes of seeing every episode, because even if you go home after school every day, you know, for years, you don't necessarily see every episode because sometimes they miss it. Right, know, right, you know, right. But these DVDs have everything and they're uncut for the most part. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, finally, I'm going to see everything. So now I can safely say there's a lot of series I've seen every episode of. And, you know, right, I'm, right. I'm happy about it because, you know, for years they weren't available or whatever, you know, like mm-hmm. Honeymooners, I, I said I wasn't a fan, but total fan of the, the, the 39. And then, you know, there's a few assorted ones around it, you know, and, you know, but thanks to home video, I could finally see all that stuff, you know. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Me too. I still collect the DVDs, even yeah. though so much is on streaming. But uh, in fact, it's funny, just before I, I logged on, I just picked up an Amazon Fire Stick. And I'm trying to figure out how to get that installed in my computer on my TV. And then I got to figure out how to, because I want to watch the new Brian Wilson documentary. And I want to be able to watch the new Beatles uh, get back on my TV as opposed to the computer. So, right, you know, all these things I got to do. I'm all set. <laughs> I'm all set up. And it's like, it's funny. Everybody's all, oh, Disney Plus. I'll get it for a day just so I can watch the Beatles. And it's like, well, I'm getting Disney Plus anyway because I'm a Disney fan. So it's like. In fact, I wish there's more old Disney stuff than, you know, more Star Wars, more uh, Marvel comic stuff. I mean, I like that stuff, but I want the more. Yeah. I want the classics, stuff, yeah, you know. the classic animated movies. Yeah. And whatnot. I mean, they have those, but, you know, I want, you know, like, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Jerry Beck, which you probably heard animation story. And he's like, where's Misadventures of Merlin Jones and the Monkey's Uncle? Why aren't those on there? You know, and it's true. <laughs> They're not on there. You know, it's like. Yeah. They could put them on there, you know, it's like, and I don't know what the reasons for it, thinking, oh, well, those are old movies, who cares? But yeah. they have older movies and that on there, you know, it's like they just don't have those two, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's just kind of hit and miss on their old Disney stuff. But if you want Marvel stuff, well, every Marvel movie ever made is on there. Of course, Star Wars, Marvel's okay, hot. Every Star Wars movie ever made is yeah, on Marvel's there. hot. What? I have no, I have, I have no time for Marvel, but Marvel is very hot right now. Yeah. So, yeah. So I understand why they put it on there, but you know, can you sneak in a few more Disney shows on the back? But anyway, so I already have it. So when get back, I'm ready for get back. It's just a countdown for when it, you know, for me, (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. And my wife's all, don't watch it without me because she actually has to work the day of was it Thanksgiving or the day after I forgot what day it debuted. It's the twenty fifth. I think that's a yeah. that's yeah. a Thursday. So yeah, and she she actually has to work that way because she does emergency response. And I go, don't worry, I will watch it again. <laughs> I right, of course. You, I said anthology when it came out. I taped it. I watched it uh, probably twenty times the following year. I got it on tape. I got it on DVD. I've got it on, well, it's not on Blu-ray, but, you know, I I, <laughs> I will watch it again. Don't, yeah. trust me, you don't have to worry about uh, that. Save it, save, it, <laughs> save it to watch it with your wife and yeah. have that experience together. What the heck? Okay, fine. Give, give, give her a point. <laughs> and then she'll go, I'm too tired to watch it. It's like it's <laughs> I read it a day for you! <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I already told her I'm going to watch it. <laughs> I already have the book, I have the DVD set, I'm ready. I'm <laughs> Go for it. Anyway. Um... Well, we've talked quite a long time. We can always do another show. <laughs> I'd love to. Uh, anything else you want to say or anything you want to plug? Um, uh, any websites, podcasts, anything else? 
of people if they want to get in contact with you, you got the floor. <laughs> well, you got uh, you got me on Facebook, so you can always look up Ed Rising on Facebook and and uh, see my smiling face and scary face and <laughs> and uh, and uh, I'll be happy to uh, you know chat with you there. Um, I don't have anything to really promote other than the fact that I'm on Plastic EP show like yourself uh, every so often. And we're looking forward to the big 600th episode. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'll see what's, what's going to be down the road. All right. Very good. Well, thank you, Ed, for being on my show. And we'll wrap it up here. And this has been another Fun Ideas podcast. And we will see you next time. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Ed Rising, for being my special guest. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 142 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Danny Salazi of the characters and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2021 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.